Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. Namihi nui. Here's William Ray with this week's Our Changing World podcast from RNZ. Today we have a battle of the ages, a fight between history and science, with a bit of religion thrown in just to spice things up even further. Actually, calling it a battle is probably overstating things, but we do have an interesting debate about the role of science in studying history. It all starts with a paper published recently in the Journal of Nature, Human Behaviour by a team of researchers at Auckland University, the Australian National University and the Max Planck Institute for the Science of Human History in Germany. This paper aims to answer a long-running argument among historians about the spread of Christianity in Europe. Was it top-down or bottom-up? Powerful people or people power? To explain, here's one of the study's authors, Professor Quentin Atkinson from Auckland University's School of Psychology. One theory for how and why Christianity spread so quickly across Europe was that Constantine was converted. Um, So he was a Roman emperor, and then he put the resources of the Roman Empire um, behind spreading Christianity, and it then spread very quickly. Uh, so that's the kind of top-down theory. Uh, but then the, the alternative bottom-up view is that Christianity had this ideology that appealed to the masses, to the underclasses, and that it was this bottom-up movement um, that spread across the empire. And Constantine might have um, just kind of seen the writing on the wall and um, decided to convert himself when it was opportune. Unfortunately, there's not much hard data on conversion rates in ancient Rome, so instead Professor Atkinson looked for another example of Christianity spreading, a little more recently and a lot closer to home, the Pacific Islands. The Pacific's made up of all these different cultures, societies uh, that have different conditions that they're living in, different ecologies, different social systems, different population sizes. And also the spread of Christianity is pretty well documented across the Pacific. The missionaries were um, somewhat obsessive in some cases uh, of documenting when they arrived, exactly what they did, what kind of resources they put into it. So what we did was build up a database of the missionization efforts across the Pacific and how successful they were at converting people. The variable we were interested in was how long did it take from the first concerted effort of missionization to convert about half the population. Professor Atkinson and his team went digging through the historical archives, looking for information about conversion. They found that across 70 Austronesian communities, that's across most of the Pacific, excluding Australia, it took an average of 30 years to convert half of the population. But it varied from, in one case, roughly a year, so the population took the ideas up very quickly to, I think, one group, maybe a couple of hundred years of concerted effort to convert half the population. So a lot of variation. 
Uh, and that was good for us because we were then able to look at what predicted that variation. So the top-down hypothesis would predict that societies that have more political structure and organization that can um, link different communities together should facilitate the spread of Christianity and therefore those societies should adopt Christianity more quickly. The bottom-up process, based on an appeal to the masses or the underclasses, that predicts that if there's more social inequality and stratification in a society, then Christianity should spread more quickly. It's more appealing to those people. But now comes the hard part. How on earth do you measure political complexity or social inequity? These things are hard enough to measure in today's world, let alone a hundred years or more in the past. All this stuff was based on um, ethnographic records, so accounts of early anthropologists, sometimes the missionaries themselves. So we, we have some ways of systematically defining these things. For example, political organization, you can have a society that has no leadership uh, they're called acephalus in our database. That's without a head. Petty chiefdoms uh, have a chief over um, a number of villages. Large chiefdoms have a superordinate chief over that. Uh, you can have another level or two of organisation above that. So basically, Professor Atkinson and his team measured political power and complexity by seeing how many tiers of leadership a society has. Is there just one person in charge of a village? Do they report to someone who's a rung above them, and does that person report to someone who's above them? Or are they just sole charge, just one chief for each village operating independently of each other? The team of scientists had another system which they used to rank how socially stratified a society was and how much social mobility people had. So, for example, in Aotearoa, New Zealand, Māori would rank quite highly in terms of political complexity because there's lots of minor chiefs reporting to paramount chiefs. There's lots of tiers of leadership there. Māori would also rank relatively highly for social stratification because pre-colonial Māori had a defined aristocratic class and it was quite hard for people who weren't in that class, the, the commoners for want of a better term, to become aristocrats. Now, Quentin Atkinson is the first to acknowledge that this ranking system is a pretty crude way of measuring the social fabric of a community. There's some room for error in these judgments, but uh, we were making these judgments across many different societies in a systematic way uh, without prejudice to the hypotheses we were testing. So um, I don't think um, I, you know, it should all come out in the, in the statistics. Caveats aside, the scientists plugged this data into their model, did all kinds of complicated mathematical equations, and came out with some interesting statistics. The presence of these tiers of political organisation predicted faster rates of missionization. The time to get to that 50% of the population converted was much less where there was this political organisation in place. Uh, we didn't find any effect of the social inequality and stratification. It fits actually with uh, reports from some of the early missionaries. Um, one of the most successful missionaries, John Williams, explicitly says in some of his writing that the way he does this is put the resources of the mission at the disposal of leaders in whatever group he's trying to convert. Looking across our database, that's probably a sensible thing to do. Unfortunately for John Williams, he did. He was ultimately killed and eaten on the island of Eramango, so he wasn't so shrewd as to be able to avoid coming to a fairly gruesome end. 
So there we have it, an answer to a hard-fought debate on a tricky historical question, all thanks to the power of big data and the scientific method. I sent this paper to a religious historian, Peter Lynham, because I was interested to see what he and his colleagues would make of the result. I sent the article off Mm. um, to six other historians, and I got comments back from five of them so far. It was very interesting. Some of them were very much more critical than I am of the article. Here's where it gets tricky, because while Peter Lynham mostly agrees with the finding of the study... He has some big reservation about this whole idea of using science to solve historical questions. A little history lesson would be useful to these social scientists. Uh, Back around 1900, uh, there was an increasing pressure for history to portray itself as a social science, always seeking for these big, broad generalizations about the nature of capitalism and the nature of modernization. And so they took social sciences concepts and they hoped that history would provide them with broad generalizations of how social change happened. And often there was an intention of finding some sort of guidance to contemporary societies of how best to shape the society. Quentin Atkinson pretty much endorses this perspective. He does think that this model of the spread of Christianity in the Pacific can be put to use in the modern world. We're hoping to study that in more detail, looking at what exactly is it about the structure, organisation of a society that facilitates the spread of ideas. Also, the relationship between a population's size and the spread of ideas. On the one hand, larger populations um, seem capable of generating more ideas, uh, but on the other hand, the work we've published here on Christianity shows that they might be slower to adopt new ideas. But Peter Lynham and his fellow historians again have some misgivings. For one thing, Professor Lynham says the historical data used in the study of Christianity in the Pacific is very uncertain. Professor Lynham says the historians he talked to had concerns about the basic assumptions which underpin the study. For many of these societies, this is very, very contested material. How many people were in New Zealand um, in, in 1800? Well, you'll read a wide variety of figures on this. Um, so making objective determinations of some of these factors is one problem. But how can you be objective about such things as the exact date of conversion from the time of the first preaching. How can you establish precisely the social, the social and political structure? How can you determine what is a small society and what is a large society? It depends which pool you look at. And so they troubled over what appeared to be very objective criteria turning out to be subjective choices of how they were interpreted. Okay, so the reliability of the data is one thing, but the other thing Peter Lynham raises is the other variables. In history, there's just so many different interconnecting factors which sort of weave together. They're leaving out the characteristic of the particular type of Christianity that sought to convert, what were the the means and modes by which it sought to convert. There's no close definition 
of conversion, which in the earlier cases involved the Spanish conversion to Catholicism in a fairly brutal fashion, um, in the later is to a type of Protestantism that is insistent upon a statement of personal faith. So there's a very wide range of things. They're condensing into a common element. Uh, And thirdly, I mean, they make some acknowledgement of the influence of other Western contacts that bear on the situation. Uh, but it's because it's too difficult to measure that contact, they make only the, a passing reference to it. And yet, in most cases, that's extremely critical. Basically, what Professor Lynham is saying is that there are all kinds of local complexities which get in the way of generalised rules of history. Classic example, the press release for this study includes a painting of Napui chief Hongi Hika standing alongside a missionary called Thomas Kendall. Presumably, this painting is there to demonstrate how powerful leaders like Hongi helped facilitate conversion. Hongi, like many other prominent Māori chiefs, allowed missionaries to live in his territory and preach to his people. But Hongi Hika never converted to Christianity. He only allowed missionaries to live in the Bay of Islands because they helped him get access to European trade goods. He once described Christianity as, quote, the religion of slaves. And incidentally, that reference to slaves also raises an interesting variant in the New Zealand context for the largest reason why Christianity spread in New Zealand was that the slaves that the Napui took in the musket wars of the 1820s uh, were brought back to the Bay of Islands and with little to do in that you know, shameful status of having been defeated in battle and reduced to slavery is that they were taken to the schools and taught to read and then subsequently in a series of community, North Island communities they are the local indigenous missionaries who take Christianity around to their particular hapu and then ask for a missionary to be sent. So, you know, the exception is a bit troubling in New Zealand. Peter Lynham says it's exactly this kind of complexity which has led to a movement among historians in the last 30 or 50 years to move away from trying to identify grand trends and forces in history and instead look at things on a much smaller scale. I mean, a huge amount of work has gone into what you might call much more close-up micro-histories, firstly, And the other side that's really interesting is uh, an increasing emphasis on postmodern or postcolonial readings where how history looks to those in power is entirely different from history from the point of view of the powerless and to actually understand that the same history can have an entirely different face in a different set of hands. But just to go back to the basic conclusions of the study, Peter Lynham still does agree that, in general, more politically complex societies in the Pacific converted to Christianity faster. So what gives? I enjoy reading this kind of research. I'm just surprised that this is presented effectively as some grand generalisation that will give us deeper understanding of what's going on. I I don't think it's succeeded in doing so. So would you like to see this kind of research stop then? I think there is some value in this contribution uh, because it's offering quite interesting hypothesis. 
which I could, I'm going to get my students to enjoy um, taking pot shots at. And that's where I see the value of it. I have to admit, I wasn't expecting Peter and his fellow historians to feel quite so strongly about this study or, or about the issue of scientific history more generally. So I phoned up Quentin Atkinson again and asked him for his reaction to this reaction. I certainly agree that history is complex and contingent, and there's a lot of value in studying the detailed cases throughout history and trying to understand them on their own merits. But I think it's wrong to say that you can't look across many events happening around the globe over a long time period, generations, hundreds or thousands of years, and identify general laws and patterns that shape the course of history. What we're doing is quite different to what was going on in the 1900s. Some of the reason that that early 1900s version of scientific history got shot down was because it was, if it was scientific, it was bad science. It was yeah, not rigorously testing things. I mean, do you think that in the past there was a bit more of sort of people had sort of had their pet theory of sort of why communism happened and then sort of looked about trying to find all of this quote-unquote scientific evidence which could back it up, whereas you're sort of trying to look more, a more blinded kind of experiment, I guess. Well, yeah, real science. Yeah. Not just um, coming up with a theory and then cherry-picking some facts to fit that theory, but going to a large data set and trying to test it in a, in a rigorous and non-prejudiced way. Whether a particular coding decision affects our results is, of course, something we can test. We can code a society in different ways and see whether it really changes our results. It's obviously one of the great strengths of science. So all our data is available and um, the precise criteria we use to code all the variables is there. If you disagree with the criteria or the variables, then you can code things a different way and see if you get a different result. And if you do, that's interesting and we can try and work out who's right and why and probably then understand the whole system better. Um, If you get the same result, then um, that kind of backs up our findings and suggests they're uh, robust. I guess the other point he's making is that these sort of generalised rules may exist, but they're almost always um, overwhelmed by local factors or like local complexities and things like that. I mean, do you think that's a fair point? I think it depends how you interpret the laws. If if you think they're deterministic laws, so if X and Y is true in a particular society, then Z must follow, then... Yeah, I think he's right. There's all sorts of local factors that will determine whether or not that's actually true. But that's why um, these laws are usually not proposed as deterministic laws. They're probabilistic. So if X and Y is true, then Z might be more likely to happen. And maybe we can quantify how much more likely. It's twice as likely to happen in general. I mean, it's sort of interesting because, I mean, he said he talked to sort of um, four or five other professors. And, I mean, obviously there's only a small subset of historians. But there sort of seemed to be a surprising amount of resistance to this effort to sort of quantify things. Are you surprised by that? Um, Well, I think partly it's a different set of questions that, for example, non-quantitative historians are interested in. Um, if you uh, are very interested in understanding the 
detailed context of particular historical events and you focus on all the complexity of that, you might find the general questions less interesting or less important and be annoyed by people who gloss over all the detail and context that um, you've spent a lot of time studying. That might be part of it. Um, but I, I mean, I'd like to think that the kind, these kinds of systematic comparative studies and um, scientific approaches to history are just a complementary set of tools for historians. I mean, do you think there's a bit of philosophical sort of <laughs> opposition going on here, like sort of that people generally don't like this idea that human beings are sort of subject to these sort of, you know, these laws that, that sort of decide how how we will behave. I mean, sort of feel it, the feeling of sort of things being preordained. Yeah, I suppose I've not thought about it that way myself. Yeah, that could be part of it. Um, yeah, I don't see it that way myself. I mean, there are all sorts of regular patterns in the world that leave plenty of room for chaos and unpredictability as well. Um, so, yeah, I don't, I don't know. It, that could be part of it. Thanks, Quentin. That was Quentin Atkinson from the Psychology Department at the University of Auckland. We also heard from Massey University Religious History Professor Peter Lynham. And that story was produced by William Ray. I'm Alison Balance, and this Our Changing World podcast first aired on RNZ National on the 13th of September 2018. Now, I'm working on a short podcast series for RNZ on viruses. And no, not computer viruses, but the biological kind. The ones that infect you and me, or other animals, and plants too. So I'm looking for your help. I'd like to know what you'd like to know about viruses. I'm looking for people with interesting virus stories. Have you had a particularly memorable viral experience? Maybe you live with a virus or have a post-viral condition. If you'd be happy to be interviewed about that, then drop me a line at ourchangingworld at rnz.co.nz. I'm also interested in short audio diaries from you, dear listeners. If you get a cold or the flu or something else viral over the next month, it would be great if you could let me know what's happening and how you're feeling. The simplest way to do this is the RNZ Vox Pop app. You can get it for your phone from the app stores. It's small, it only requires access to your phone's microphone, and you can record up to a minute of audio at a time that I can use. Easy peasy, the RNZ Vox Pop app. Hope to hear from some of you. Not that I'm wishing a viral infection on anyone, you understand. By the way, our webpage is rnz.co.nz slash ourchangingworld. We are RNZ Our Changing World on your favourite podcast provider, and on Twitter and Facebook, we are RNZ Science. Bye for now. Mate wa. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.